0: From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: Read stuff that has nothing to do with your specialty. Go to meetings that have nothing to do with your specialty. Talk to people that don't look and smell and taste and look like you. That's just an example of how you practice this stuff. But you have to make it a habit. It's just like any change management. It's like quitting smoking.
0: That's Arlen Myers discussing how healthcare professionals can embrace a more entrepreneurial mindset. We'll hear more from Arlen on the true definition of innovation, the value of an MBA for medical professionals, and his role in the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. But first, a word from our sponsors. Staffing a medical practice is no easy task, but it can be with the help of MGMA's Simple Guide to Hiring series, Christine Kalish, Penny Crow, and Sharon Jencanski have teamed up on seven titles, all aimed to assist you in recruiting, hiring, and retaining the right staff for your practice. To purchase or preview any selections in the Simple Guide to Hiring series, search for Simple Guide at mgma.com/store. Are you a healthcare professional who always has the bottom line in mind? Then you're not alone. Join others just like you at MGMA 20 The Financial Conference March 5th through the 7th in Nashville, Tennessee. This industry leading conference is designed to arm medical professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. Whether you're a CFO, accountant, physician, consultant, or other related position, the Music City is where you'll want to be this spring. To learn more or take advantage of early bird registration, Visit mgma.com slash tfc. The world is full of ideas, and that's especially true when it comes to shaping and improving the business of healthcare. But what exactly constitutes an idea, and how does it differ from an innovation, an improvement, or an invention? This week's guest, Arlen Myers, has given a great deal of thought to this question and many others related to healthcare entrepreneurship. Arlen is a professor, author, and the president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. Arlen, thanks so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You have a varied career. It touches healthcare, academia, entrepreneurship, uh, medical side, business side. So I want you just in a nutshell, tell our audience a little bit about that background and then where you got focused on healthcare innovation and then also providing guidance to physician entrepreneurs.
1: Sure, so I uh, grew up in inner city Philadelphia and I had a pretty traditional medical education career track. Uh, I went to school back east and did a residency in otolaryngology and then I got recruited to the University of Colorado straight out of my residency and that was in 1976, so that's a long time ago. But basically, I stayed in academic medicine as an academic ear, nose, and throat surgeon pretty much at the University of Colorado or major affiliates throughout my career. And during that time, uh, um, to make a long story short, uh, during my research and development sort of mandate as an academic, Myself and several other people were involved in the development of a device that optically detects head and neck cancer, particularly in the oral cavity, because that's what I was interested in. And without going through all the gory details, uh, what that taught me was that every doctor, scientist, engineer, health professional that I knew thought they had a good idea, including myself. Um, They had absolutely no idea what to do with that idea, including myself. And they weren't going to be taught what to do with it in, in their formal training, which was also the case with me. And so again, the long and the short of it is during that, that, that's the experience that sort of led me down this road because I didn't think any of that was right. And so what I'm trying to do is work with others to is fill those gaps whether it's the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, whether it's teaching in a business or at Anschutz Medical Campus or an academic medical center, whether it's consulting with companies, whether it's speaking, writing, et cetera, the headline is I'm trying to help people get their ideas to patients.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and ideas are really at the forefront or at the main focus of what you and I are gonna be talking about and how to really how to bring those ideas to, to the finish line, because as you and I both know, people in general and people in healthcare specifically have a lot of ideas, but so many of those ideas never reach fruition. They aren't uh, realized, and and that's a shame often because there are a lot of great ideas that just either get abandoned for whatever reason, and I did want to ask you about that. Why is that? What is the what is the main barrier or obstacle that keep people from seeing those ideas you know, reach their their potential?
1: Well, that's a multi-layered question. Um, first of all, well, so let me just kind of lay it out at, at the higher level and maybe we can drill down on some of the elements. But my view is that. Um, in order, first of all, there was a difference between an idea and invention and improvement and an innovation. And lots of people call everything an innovation when they have no business doing that. So that's why we have a lot of innovation theatre and stuff and shiny new objects and chief innovation officers and budgets that go to all this stuff. But it, it, it's really misapplied frequently. And then you throw in the term disruptive and then it really makes things messy. So, first of all, I think you have to understand the difference between an idea and invention an improvement and an innovation and the short answer is an idea is something that sticks in your head and never sees the light of day. An invention is an idea reduced to practice, could be a a prototype, it could be a drawing, it could be styrofoam and duct tape, it could be anything, you know, picture. Um, and there's a lay definition and a legal definition in intellectual property law, but that's basically what it is. An improvement has to do with what I call the novelty value matrix. And that means, do you have something new or more commonly, do you have something old that you're doing in a new way? But the more important part of that is the value that you're creating in the mind of the user. So. If you, are, if you have something new and you are creating multiples of user-defined value, then depending on how much value you've created, and a lot of folks have chosen the 10x number. So, for example, in order for you to change from one product to the next, research indicates that you have to perceive at least a five-time increase in value compared to the competition. And there's always competition, even if it's the status quo. So in order, in my definition, to create healthcare innovation truly, you need to create something that is all new or all done in a new way that creates 10 times the user or stakeholder defined value when compared to the status quo or the competition. So that's the first part. You have to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. Is it simply incremental process improvement? Is it something further up on the right-hand scale of the matrix that I just described? Or is it something which people are calling moonshots or go big or go home or, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals or any of those things, which are much more difficult to accomplish? So once you decide on that, once you do that, I think there are basically three parts to this Rubik's cube. One is, that is, why is it so hard to create and deploy innovation in healthcare? One is because you don't have enough people with an entrepreneurial mindset who are trying to do it. Two is you don't have a culture of innovation in the places that they work. And three, you don't have the tactics, strategy, structure, process, and metrics to actually execute on the idea. So it's a three part equation. Entrepreneurial mindset, working in a culture of innovation with the tools they need to execute the idea.
0: Okay. I wanna take a step back for a moment because MGMA, one of its foundational themes is the business of healthcare and You, as you had mentioned, you earned your M.D. back in the early 70s, but not too much later, about within a decade or so, you took another leap, went back to school and started working on your MBA. At what point did you see the benefit of having, you know, being right in the thick of that uh, sort of, you know, crosshairs of both medicine and business seeing the benefit of business and the business of healthcare
1: um well i guess the you know the the soundbite uh cliche answer is when i started getting more interested in the wall street journal than the new england journal <laughs> uh but that's kind of flip right? But, so let right. me let me let me sort of drill down on that a little bit so so i think what happened was that i realized what i call my innerpreneur In other words, a lot of people don't get accepted to medical school, including me, because they're creative, imaginative geniuses with all sorts of, you know, great ideas. They get accepted to medical school because they know how to memorize stuff. They know how to do well on a standardized test and they know exactly what to say in the interview. And that's what happened to me. And in fact, as you may well know, when you get into medical school, creativity is not encouraged. In fact, conformity is. So it's cruel and unusual punishment in this day and age to expect doctors to create value and oh, by the way, that's how we're going to pay you in the brave new world without actually teaching them how to do it. So that's another problem that we're trying to solve. So specifically to your question, I had always been, I, I grew up. Uh, my dad was a pharmacist. He had a retail drugstore. He was a professor in a pharmacy school. So I had a, a, an upbringing around academia, around universities, around research. But I also, you know, one of my first jobs was in, a pharma, was in his pharmacy, in his little corner drugstore. And my first job, amongst others, was to pack gelatin capsules for filling prescriptions. In those days, they didn't make them in machines, you had to do it by hand. So I kind of grew up around a small business, but I really didn't know that. I didn't realize that 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 was kind of like part of me until later on when I, you know, kind of like this, hmm, healthcare, even, even back in the day, like in the late early 80s. Now, you know, I grew up in the golden age of medicine, but it was pretty evident that the system was broken then, and would continue to be broken, and eventually it was going to implode, which I think is where we are now. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, "Well, how am I going to change it? And how am I going to position to take? How am I going to position myself to take advantage of it?" So that was like another another incentive for me to go to school. Now the irony is that, or one of the ironies is that after I graduated from graduate school, uh, I thought it was important that doctors know something about the business of medicine. So myself and some other people created an MD MBA program at the University of Colorado. Fast forward. Now I think MD MBA programs, most of them should be eliminated, frankly, because I really don't think they provide value for what a work, a healthcare workforce needs to win the, 20, the fourth industrial revolution in the 21st century.
0: Well, did. Did you're going to, going into the MBA program, did that make you a better doctor, or help you become a better doctor, or did it, in what ways did it help you if it didn't?
1: Well, so the answer to your question is no. It had nothing to do with making me a better doctor. Um, uh, and I tell people, because I get this question all the time from medical students and pre-meds, people who are in their second, third year of school and residents, should I get an MBA? And my answer is, the MBA in my view, provides um, uh, connections, I call them the four C's, connections, credibility, credentials and content. In that order, the most important part of the, in my MBA program, were the connections and the networks that I made. And I'm not alone, because Harvard actually did a forward-looking study, and they said, you know, where was the most value of a Harvard MBA 15 years later? And it turned out, and I'm paraphrasing, it was more important, your roommate was more important than who was in the club, you know, what you learned. Mm -hmm. Because it turned out your roommate is now the governor of Ohio. (laughs) Yep. So I, I just don't think it adds value. So I think are there certain NBNBA programs, you know, top tier programs that add value probably, but even those don't direct the relevance to healthcare. And it's such a, it's such a different domain. I think bioinnovation innovation and entrepreneurship is a separate academic domain. And I think it should be treated as such. And I think that the knowledge, skills, abilities, and competencies that are required to be successful, are there generic ones that apply to all entrepreneurs and business? Yes. Does it make sense to know accounting and finance? Yes. Are there certain basics about marketing that apply to healthcare? Yes. But once you get through the core course, the graduate course is very deep. And I don't think a lot of programs offer it
0: hmm You're talking about being entrepreneurial, and you had mentioned it earlier, you're the president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. Let's talk about that for just a moment. What is your role there, and what's the primary goal for that organization? What are you trying to achieve?
1: Sure. So the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs is a nonprofit, global biomedical and clinical innovation and entrepreneurship network. Our mission is to help members get ideas to patients or to help someone who wants to get an idea to a patient. We're an open innovation network. That means we have people who are healthcare professionals, but also investors, entrepreneurs, service providers, academics, economic development folks, patients, anyone who has an interest in the innovation supply chain that ultimately will benefit a patient. So that's what we do. And as I said, the problem we're trying to solve is everybody's got a good idea. They don't know what to do with it, and they're not going to get the skills, knowledge, abilities, and competencies to do something with it. So that's what we're trying to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Is it an incubator in a way? I mean, I I know that our audience may be familiar with the show Shark Tank, where ideas are brought up to the sharks. I mean, is there some sort of uh, process like that? How do these ideas see the light? Right.
1: So, no, we are not a shark tank. We are not an investor network. We are not an incubator. We are not an accelerator. We are not a Uh whateverator. Instead, we are a cross between Rotary and (laughs) Match.com. Okay. So, in other words we have these chapters around the world where service mission driven industry we're a nonprofit. We charge a ridiculously low amount of money to be a member. It's like 80 bucks a year. But the key is we're a dating service. Mm-hmm. So at these chapter meetings, the idea is to, is to put enough like-minded people in a room and let nature happen. So I tell people our chapter meetings are places where ideas go to have sex we make dates. We don't make babies. So all we do is put people together. And in the course of conversation and networking, they identify mutual interests. And if I'm a, a physician and I got an idea and you happen to be a patent attorney, then we go down that road. If I, you know, if I'm looking for money and you happen to be a potential investor or you know someone who is, then we go down that road. If I have an idea for an iPhone app and you're a techie, and I need someone to create a wireframe, then we go down that road. So that's how this works. And it's amazingly efficient because what happens is people start connecting. Entrepreneurs are great connectors and, and networkers, and it's all about connecting dots. And that's another problem with doctors, which is they have very narrow networks. They don't talk to anybody outside of their specialty, let alone their profession. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to get an idea to somebody, that simply does not work.
0: Mm-hmm. Some of the experts in the field, uh, Seth Godin, Malcolm Gladwell, they've both written about influencers and how important that is to have those in your life. Is is that part of it having you were talking about your, your roommate could be the governor now, or could be in some other power position. Is that it at at these meetings to, to find that influencer can, who can uh, take your idea to the next level?
1: Yes. And you know, specifically Malcolm Gladwell has written about salesmen. He's written about Mavens. He's written about connectors. He's written about experts, tipping point, all that business. So, you know, I, Typically, so you asked me, what's my role in the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs? Well, technically, I'm one of the co-founders and a president, CEO of the organization. Practically, I'm a connector. So that's the idea. So over the years, I've managed to connect to a bunch of folks because of my interest. And I'll tell you, you know, that the biggest question, one of the biggest questions I get asked is, how do I find money? How do I, you know, where do I get money from? Well, it's, it's really about connecting to people and identifying and making relationships to the right people. It's not a spray and pray endeavor. You have to f- figure out who it is you wanna meet and make sure that person is in your network. It's strictly a relationship business.
0: Hmm. In this organization, what's the demographic makeup of it? And demographic, I mean, from a professional standpoint, what, what's the breakdown percentage-wise of who you might meet in these meetings?
1: It depends on the chapter, but in general, the organization. I mean, we're talking about uh, roughly five 6,000 prospective or dues-paying members around the world. Um, the total addressable market in the United States is roughly 750,000 to 900,000 active docs, depending on which database you use. As I said before, I think about 1% of those people have an entrepreneurial mindset. So 1% of 900,000 people is what, 9,000 people. So we're talking about a relatively small group of active practicing physicians. Now, again, we include all healthcare professionals and we're around the world. So it's a much bigger number, but to answer your question about Half to 40% of the people are health professionals and the rest are non healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. Techies, entrepreneurs, investors, service providers, those kinds of people. And that's exactly the way we want it because sick care cannot be fixed from inside.
0: It needs those outside disruptors, so to speak. I know that uh, we've had the Googles of the world, the apples of the world are, are big examples of disruptors and outsiders who have come into healthcare, but who who are some of the other ones that you're talking about when you mention you need that outside help?
1: Okay, so if you read a book called Where to Do I, Where Good Ideas Come From? Um, one of the ways that's mentioned are what are called edge technologies. So what that means is that if you wanna find medical innovation, you're not going to find it at a medical meeting. You're going to find it at the consumer Electronics show in Las Vegas. You're going to find it at an energy conference discussing why Africa is dark. You're going to find it at a FinTech conference, figuring out why blockchain is going to supposedly change the world in Maisie medicine. You're going to go learn it from aerospace, advanced manufacturing, Tech, data and intelligence, video, entertainment, all those places are creating solutions to problems that beset sick care but have not been applied. And if you look at the the so-called innovations that everybody's all excited about, big data, analytics, business intelligence, that didn't come from sick care, telemedicine that didn't come from sick care. GPS, that didn't come from sick care. Remote sensing that came from NASA. So all of these things that are impacting medicine and everybody's getting all worked up about that did not come from some doctor in a lab. It came from another industry and the future changes of sick care are going to come from the same place. There's a place in, I mean, Denver is, was, and still is to some respects, the center of the cable industry. It's a long history, but it is. They have a place called Cable Labs. Cable Labs is a think tank trying to figure out where should cable position itself 10 years from now, five years from now, and guess where they're snooping around? Sick care. I think Comcast will, or or Comcast-like companies, will be the next big service provider to sick care. There are more people watching television than snooping around on laptops or doing telemedicine. So it's those kinds of edge technologies where the innovations are gonna happen. And again, part of the problem is scientists, engineers, and doctors have terrible networks.
0: Yeah, let's put this in perspective for a moment for our listeners. As you know, the MGMA audience, we're practice administrators, were physicians, were other healthcare leaders and healthcare professionals. Why is this important to them? Why should they be interested in an entrepreneurial mindset and for this type of innovation?
1: There's a number of reasons. I mean, practically, because if you don't innovate, it's unlikely that you will be successful in the future as a physician in a medical group practice. It's that simple that your, your revenue stream will dry up. You may get burned out or dissatisfied. Uh, you will not be able to deliver the mission that you signed up for, which basically was to help take care of patients at scale. And um, your organization will fail. It's that simple. So you can either, you know, watch the train go down the tracks, or you can create your own future. hmm.
0: You had mentioned a, a really interesting statistic earlier that, as far as your research shows you, that about one percent of physicians have an entrepreneurial mindset. Do, does that translate to other healthcare professionals as well, or is that isolated to the physicians?
1: Now, I, I deal, at the University of Colorado, I deal with uh, graduate students that are bioscientists, you know, in our MD-PhD program or PhD or those in you know, graduate school. I also deal with bioengineers and I deal with health professionals as well as MBAs, business students, uh, sometimes lawyer, legal law students, those kinds of folks. And the, the research, the survey research seems to indicate that, well, first of all, the level of entrepreneurship in the United States has been decreasing over the last 40 years. And and that, as you say, well, what's the criteria for that? Well, businesses that have been in existence between three and five years, depending on who you read. And if you look at the statistics, entrepreneurship is has slowed down in the United States. There's a number of reasons for that, but it has.
0: Do- can you just elaborate on a couple of them? I mean, is it just because there are conglomerates that that run everything? I mean, the mega companies or it, why is that? I would think with all the uh, opportunity for building out apps and other technology that there would be even more, but why are there less?
1: So some of the reasons are consolidation and Uh, fighting up against the big guys is getting harder and harder Mm -hmm. and harder. You already mentioned that. Uh, Two is, while it's true, it's never been cheaper to start a business. It's getting harder and harder to scale it. And one of my arguments is we don't need more accelerators. You know, we should stop worrying about the birth rate and be more concerned about the survival rate because the likelihood of your business staying in business, again, it depends on who you read, but the five year survival rate of an average business is about 40 or 50%. It's going to go out of business half the time. It's a flip of the coin. So it's, it's getting harder and harder, whether it's regulation. And then when you focus in on sick care or health care. It's a much more complicated ecosystem, so it makes things that much more difficult. Highly regulated industry, long time to market, resistance to change, lack of an entrepreneurial mindset, improper training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a third reason is, you know, most people go into entrepreneurship because they want to or they have to. And most people have to when the economy is so lousy that they create small businesses. Well, now in the United States, things are chugging along, so you don't have to, I mean, you know, there's a war for talent. If you have the skills, you can pretty much find a job, although admittedly, it's sometimes difficult. So entrepreneurship by necessity is reflected in the numbers versus entrepreneurship because you want to in pursuit of opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: there's a, there's, a, there's a relationship between the state of the economy and small business creation.
0: Okay. You had mentioned an interesting term, entrepreneurial mindset. So if you don't mind just defining that for us and then providing some of the key characteristics of it.
1: Sure. So mindset refers to how you see the world. In other words, it's your frame of reference. It's the lenses that you see the world through. And some typical examples would be, do you see a challenge or an opportunity? Do you see the destination or the journey? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Um, Are you a defender or an attacker? And so it really has to do with how you see the world. Now, there are other metal layers that surround the mindset thing. It starts with mindset. Innovation starts with mindset. Because how you think is going to determine how you feel, which determines how you act. So if you don't think that way, it's unlikely you're going to be able to do anything about it. Then there's the layer of the personality. And people say, well, are there certain personalities that are suited to be entrepreneurs versus others? The answer is no. Anybody can do it. Generally, your personality is fixed in most domains by the time you're 15 or 16. Actually, recent evidence indicates that your personality does change as you age, but only in certain domains. By and large, you still keep the stripes on the tiger. And then you have entrepreneurial behaviors, which are manifestations of your personality and your mindset. So the behaviors have to do, there's multiple competencies and behaviors that have been described. I would refer the listeners to something called the Innovator DNA, which is written by the Harvard group, Clayton Christensen, a couple other people. And fundamentally, they did a research project. They talked to a bunch of successful entrepreneurs, and they tried to figure out where were the commonalities, and they basically came up with five, and they called it the innovator's DNA. So that had to do with five behaviors and thought processes, questioning, associating, connecting, experimenting, and observing. And we can get into the details about each one of those, but again, there's a lot of literature out there about what is it about the mindsets of entrepreneurs? It's a nature-nurture thing. I happen to think that the nurture part, or the nature part, which I just described as the entrepreneurial DNA, is about 15% of the equation. And the 85% is learning this stuff and what you have to do to execute.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the next question I was gonna ask you about the whole nature-nurture side of it. like. Are these characteristics taught? Are they hardwired? So you're saying that there is opportunity for people. So how can they improve? You know, if you wanna make your muscles bigger, you go lift weights. If you wanna be more of an innovative thinker, have that innovative mindset, what do you do? What are those muscle building activities to grow that side of you?
1: Um, So there's, I would cite three things. One recognize that what got you to where you are now as a doctor will not get you to where you want to be as an entrepreneur. It's a totally different skill set. So as my friend says, you have to come down off the mountain. I'm sorry, doctor, you don't know everything, and particularly when it comes to business. So you have to be able to accept that you don't know what you don't know, identify your blind spots, and do stuff to fill them. The second is that you need not just degrees and letters after your name. You need knowledge, skills, resources, networks, mentors, peer-to-peer support, experience, and career development guidance. And if you don't have a personal development plan or a career development plan like that for entrepreneurship, it's unlikely that you're really going to make much of an impact. And the third is that, as I mentioned, these five characteristics of the entrepreneurial DNA, questioning, associating, connecting, experimenting, and observing, there are ways that you can practice those. So for example, one skill is in terms of observing, how do you see around corners? What do you need to do to see what's coming down the road? regret saying, gee, I I wish I had seen that coming. So how do you do that? Well, part of it is expand your networks, get involved in, you know, build a, a LinkedIn site or a social media site and get outside of your box. Read stuff that has nothing to do with your specialty. Go to meetings that have nothing to do with your specialty. Talk to people that don't look and smell and taste and look like you diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. That's just an example of how you practice this stuff. But you have to make it a habit. And in order to make it a habit, that means you have to do it a step at a time. You have to have triggers. You have to have behaviors. And you have to have rewards when you do it. It's just like any change management. It's like quitting smoking. So you have to develop entrepreneurial habits that translate into these things that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. it's not easy it's not easy and this is a hard road and part of the reason why doctors don't want to do it or don't do it is because the opportunity first of all they're complacent because they think I'm a doctor I'll just do this and I'll make a lot of money and live happily ever after Mm -hmm. and the second is that um, they don't want to take the risk and the opportunity cost is too high
0: yeah here's one question though with the whole thing there is a huge commitment and as you were saying you got to you got to step off of the mountain and not only that but you've got to step outside of your own comfort zone to take a take a chance basically but here's the here's the difficult part with this there's no shortage of studies on both physician and just healthcare in general burnout and so People who might be listening right now might be going, well, my gosh, I'm already maxed out at what I can handle. So besides just saying, you know, tighten up your shoelaces and go do it, what is the way someone who, who wants to think outside the box and who wants to take a chance here, how do they manage time, manage energy, and manage just their work-life balance to add one more thing to their schedule to become an entrepreneur and an innovator?
1: So the first thing you need to do is you need to understand the definition of entrepreneurship. And we are not talking about creating a company. That is not the def- my definition of entrepreneurship. The definition is, my definition, lots of them, the pursuit of opportunity, under conditions of uncertainty with the goal of creating in this case, patient defined or stakeholder defined value through the deployment of innovation, using a viable business model. So there's five parts to the, to the definition. Now, if that's the definition, and let's just argue that we're going to accept that creating a company is one way to do that, but it's very hard and time consuming and it takes everything we've just talked about, and courage. So if you are trying to be a medical practice entrepreneur, you don't have to do the moonshot. You can do incremental things to deliver value to the patient through the deployment of innovation. And they're relatively simple things that you can do, whether it's creating a favorable space that we used to call the waiting room. I mean, does that make sense to call it a waiting room? Instead, turn it into something, an education resource. And there's all kinds of people that are using kiosks and iPads and data interfaces so they don't have to do it on the EMR and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're very simple things that, you know, low tech solutions, that you can deploy now admittedly are they going to change sick care to health care overnight no but if it's if you're just trying to make a difference there are lots of things that you can do but it takes a mindset you can't keep just doing the same thing
0: yeah you know I,
1: i just read for example that it used to be that the biggest complaint patients had was It took too long to get an appointment, and when they got to the office, they had to wait forever for the doctor to see them, and they're sitting with the, you know, their butt hanging out on the chair and all that. Mm -hmm. Now, the single biggest complaint, and the reason patients won't come back, is the waiting room is dirty. Now, cleaning the reception area, I wouldn't think would be a terribly high-tech solution, but... If you're really interested in patient as the consumer, that's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. It's like the old joke about the outdated magazines.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: There's just lots of stuff you can do.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, I've thought about that as well, is what, did, what message does it send a patient if they sit down, they are waiting, they grab the magazine, and it's from three years ago. I know it's an old joke and an easy target, but... If you think about the way our minds work, are you beginning to kind of, kind of ratchet through a bunch of ideas like, well, if they're outdated with the magazines, are they outdated with the way that they treat the patient and and work us through the whole system here? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I I mean, it, again, it gets to the mindset, and the mindset is. Put yourself, it's very simple. Put yourself in the place of the patient. It's the latest tag word is design thinking. Mm -hmm. But what it simply means is put yourself in the place of the patient. So if you're sitting in a reception area, the plant's dead, the magazines are out out of whack. There's a glass that's separating you from the receptionist you have to fill out 15 clipboards, et cetera, et cetera, in a dirty office. What does that say? It says there's a lot of talk and flapping lips about the customer experience, which I think is like total trash and and ridiculous given the simple things that you can do to just make it nicer for the patient.
0: Hmm. Now, you write, Prolifically, I mean, I don't know how else to even address that. I don't know where you get the time to do all of this. But in some of your writings, you've discussed the concept of intrapreneur. We've been talking about entrepreneurs. So what do you mean by that? What's an intrapreneur and how does that differ from an entrepreneur?
1: Sure. So an entrepreneur is the person that does what I said the definition of entrepreneurship is. In other words, it's the person that does that, creates user-defined value through the deployment of innovation with a viable business model. Now, there are different kinds of entrepreneurs in any industry, but particularly in sick care. There are small to medium enterprise business owners, private practitioners, or group practice owners. There are technopreneurs, people that get gadgets or drugs or devices to market. There are social entrepreneurs, people who are trying to improve the human condition. Do they have to make a profit? Yes, but it's a mission driven. It's like soap. We're trying to change the human condition through the deployment of innovation. You could be an investor. You could, you could be what we call a philanthropeneur, somebody who is giving money to try to improve the human condition, whether it be to a nonprofit or an academic medical center. And finally, you could be an intrapreneur, which means, which has more relevance to your audience and to the increasing number of doctors that are employed now, you're trying to act like an, you're an employee of an organization, trying to act like an entrepreneur within the organization. That is, you're trying to deliver value to the beneficiary of your organization, which in this case is the patient, but also to your employer. And guess what happens if you don't do that? You get fired. Mm-hmm. You get a knock on the door that says, how come you're not doing this? How come you're not doing that? Where are all the RVUs? Here are the complaints from Press Ganey, blah, 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 blah. So you have to, that's what an intrapreneur is. And oh, incidentally, intrapreneurship is much harder than just being a technopreneur because not only do you have to deal with the problems of getting an idea to a patient, product market fit, business model, customer discovery, funding, all that stuff. But if you're an entrepreneur, you have to fight the corporate immune structure. And there are lots and lots of more people who want to see things exactly the way they are now than people who want to see them changed. So when you come up with an idea, the corporate immune system will flap their lips and say, great, but guess what happens? You get squashed like a grape.
0: Mm -hmm. Now we've been talking so far a lot about the, the theories and definitions of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. On this show, we love specific real world examples as well. So can you provide a, a couple of those for us to people who have, come up with these ideas, but they've been nurtured and fostered and have seen the light and have been successful.
1: Well, I, I mean, I work with a lot of different people, but I, you know, I just use myself as an example. That way I don't have to answer to anybody. It's, <laughs> it's, um, and I don't going to get hate mail or whatever. So, right. you know, when I, when I was in private practice and I was for many years, and incidentally, I also worked in a medical group. So I'm pretty familiar with what your audience experienced. Um, As an example, I was interested, as I said, I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. I was interested in gadgets. I got involved in lasers, surgical lasers, way back when. Uh, We were one of the early folks that did surgical laser treatments for laryngeal lesions, and myself and some other people created an institute for laser surgery and medicine. Now at the time, that was relatively new, and the whole point of it was exactly what it said to do research on this cutting edge technology, which a million years ago was a laser. Now it's some other shiny new object, but we incorporated it into the practice. So it wasn't just us, me doing surgery with a shiny new object. We were trying to understand the ins and outs of it. and Was it cost effective? And what do you use it for? And we were publishing a lot of stuff. We had an education and research foundation. We were giving courses. We were producing a lot of content on, in those days, not so much online, but in, in seminars, workshops, etc. So that's an example of how you can, you know, leverage uh, innovative skills and supplement your practice at the same time, doing well by doing good.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you this then. So what can the medical world do to foster a more entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit in its educational opportunities. I know you've, you've provided your opinion on just the traditional MBA programs and even the MD MBA programs, but what can be done then from an educational standpoint to bring these up and lift them up?
1: In my view, we need to rethink medical education. It's time for a Flexner 2.0. And part of the problem is that we are not training people. We are not selecting, developing, promoting, and retaining healthcare workers to win the fourth industrial revolution. We're in a different era. We're we're and the way we select medical students, I think is ridiculous. I think, for example, we should eliminate the med the MCAT. Uh, I think that there's too much bias in selection. I think that the curriculum is outdated. I think that the fact that there isn't a mandatory digital health course or something just in medical school is educational malpractice. I mean, right now, digital health is what we teach second year residents, and that means you gotta learn all the usernames and passwords in six different hospitals so you can pull up the CBC for rounds the next morning. That's not my idea of digital health. So we need to rethink medical education, we need to rethink the learning objectives, we need to rethink the curriculum, and we need to create a talent pipeline. We need to get over credentialitis. You know, I tell people that I work at the University of Colorado, which is basically a state supported medical school. So that means I'm looking at three of the most change resistant industries in the United States, higher ed, sick care and government. It's a big ball to push up a hill. Mm -hmm. So there are no simple solutions. And when politicians talk about this, this and that, you know, in in a 30 second soundbite, I understand why they're doing it but it's not going to get us there. All we right. should spend more time fixing, worrying about fixing sick care, and by that I mean translating sick care to health care than funding it. It doesn't make sense. I don't care how you fund it to throw good money after bad.
0: Yeah, that's that is fascinating and I appreciate you sharing those thoughts there and I wanted to ask you just Any final thoughts then on any tools or techniques that that our listeners can apply to their daily practice to become more innovative in their daily life? I know you mentioned some things as far as just the design of medical practice. Is there anything else you'd like to share just to sort of summarize these thoughts on an entrepreneurial mindset?
1: Well, as I said, not everybody is cut out to do this. So I I think the main thing is, is this, you know, what is your objective? Um, What are you trying to do in your personal and professional life? And if you're dissatisfied or if you're grumpy or if you're burned out or if, 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 then there are opportunities out there for you to help patients without seeing 25 or 30 of them a day for the rest of your career and being unhappy about it. So the message that I'm trying to send is most of us went into this field to try to help patients. Seeing them face to face in your office, A, is an outmoded, outmoded business model. But secondly, there are lots of other ways to do that and to deliver value. So to answer your question, look at your mindset, and if your mindset is not set to this, you have a couple of choices. You can keep it exactly the way it is and be exactly the way you are, or you can do something about it to change it. And so the first step is change it, and, and that's not coming. That's not going to be easy. That's like lose hundred pounds. Well, that's not that's not easy. But you have to take the first step. And fortunately, there are, resources, there are resources out there that can help you, you know, just for the sake of shameless self-promotion. That's what we created the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs for, to help other doctors get their ideas to patients. And there's lots of ways to do that. Creating a company is one. Seeing 40 a day for 40 years is another. But there's lots of other ways to do it.
0: Arlen Myers, president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest Arlen Myers. Also, don't forget to check out MGMA's Simple Guide to Hiring series. To purchase or preview any of the series' seven books, search for Simple Guide at mgma.com/store. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.